Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn to John chapter 8. My heart is already full from singing the Lord's praise. Although I might have to ask Hunter not to sing Abide With Me before I preach. I love that song. John chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 12 to 30 on this Lord's Day. John chapter 8, verses 12 to 30. And I'll ask you to follow along with me as we read from God's word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word. Heavenly Father, help us now. Please help us by giving us the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that we would know things that are true, that we would believe things that are true, that we would hold fast to the truth. Father, please build us up in that truth so that we might make your name known. Father, please keep me from error. Please grant discernment today to your people. Please watch over us, God, as we sit under the preaching of your word. We know, Father, that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we pray, Lord, that we would live today, that our faith would live as we hear your word. Please bring glory to your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The aim of this sermon is taken straight from verse 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the aim of this sermon is to help you follow the light of the world. By God's grace and in some small way, I hope that by the end of this sermon, each of us is better equipped to turn from the darkness of sin and then walk in the light of Christ. The aim of this sermon is to help you follow Jesus. Of course, that is the same thing as saying that the aim of this sermon is discipleship. The word follow in verse 12 is a discipleship word. For example, John 1.43, Jesus found Philip and said to him, Follow me. 
Or John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So when I say the aim of this sermon is to help you follow Jesus, we're talking about discipleship. And I'm going to be up front with you. This is a moment of full disclosure about the mission and direction of the church. I believe that discipleship ought to be the central pursuit, the central activity of the local church. Discipleship. In one year, five years, ten years, I pray that Fisherville will have grown deeper in a culture of discipleship. What is a culture of discipleship? Well, a disciple follows Jesus by submitting to his word and living in obedience to his commands. So a culture of discipleship is where each and every member of the church uses his or her life and gifts to help others follow Jesus by submitting to his word and walking in the light. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus by obedience. So a culture of discipleship in a church is where every member is using his or her life to help every other member do that very thing. Follow Jesus by obedience to his word. That's a culture of discipleship, and that's where I pray that we're headed. In emphasizing discipleship, we are following Jesus' lead. This is what Jesus was about. Jesus emphasized discipleship. The most well-known example is the Great Commission, Matthew 28. But the reality is that discipleship runs through the entirety of Jesus' ministry, not just the Great Commission. Sometimes we talk about the Great Commission as though at the very end Jesus says, By the way, do discipleship wrong. It's not a tack-on at the end. It runs through the entirety of Jesus' ministry. It's what he's calling people to do at each step of his life. And our passage this morning in John 8 is a good example. Here in the middle of his ministry, Jesus calls people to follow him. Remember, in, in John 8, Jesus is teaching during the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a time of celebration and anticipation steeped in Old Testament scripture. So, this would be the ideal time. This would be the ideal time for Jesus to declare what he is about. The anticipation is high. The expectation is there. The stage is set, so to speak, for Jesus to put his core message on display. What is he about? And that's precisely what he does in verse 12. Calls people to follow him. That's his core message. Verse 12 in John chapter 8 is the ministry of Jesus in one verse. Jesus declares his identity. I am the light of the world. Jesus declares his mission to deliver those who dwell in darkness. And then Jesus calls people to respond. Whoever follows me has the light of life. So John 8 might not be as well known as the Great Commission, but the emphasis is exactly the same. Following the Lord. Who is Jesus? The light of the world. What has he come to do? Redeem people from darkness. Therefore, what should be our response? Follow him. Live in submission to him through obedience to his word. That's why I say that the aim of this sermon is to help you follow Jesus. Of course, there are other important things in this passage. It's fascinating that Jesus mentions light in verse 12, and then he doesn't mention it again in the rest of the passage. That's interesting. There are other important things to note. But the main point and the main application are right there in verse 12. Jesus is the light of the world, and therefore following him, discipleship is his core message. So, with that emphasis in view, and, and we're taking this emphasis because we want to have the voice of Jesus, the tenor of Jesus, the emphasis of Jesus be ours. With that, with that emphasis in view, here's how we're going to proceed. It's a pretty basic outline. We're going to work through the passage noting four different perspectives on Jesus as the light of the world and how we should respond to him. Pretty basic outline. If verse 12 
is the ministry of Jesus in one verse, then we need to zero in on what it means to follow the Lord. That's what we're going to do, Lord willing, from four different perspectives. Let's begin then in verse 12 with the first perspective, the call of the light. Verse 12, the call of the light. Light is one of John's favorite images. Think back to John chapter 1 where the apostle says, Light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So John loves this image of light. It runs through the whole book. Chapters 3, 5, 8, 9, 11, 12. It's all through the book. John uses light to picture the person and work of Christ. To describe the person and work of Christ. Where does John get that image of light? Is he depending upon Greek philosophy from his day? Not primarily. Instead, John draws this image from the Old Testament. Specifically, light in the Old Testament is connected with God himself. God's presence, God's salvation, God's word. So you can understand why verse 12 would be such a powerhouse statement from Jesus. When Jesus declares... I am the light of the world. He is proclaiming in Jerusalem his identity as God. And every Jew in Jerusalem would have made that connection. He's declaring his identity as God. Jesus embodies the glorious nature of God. The unapproachable light of God takes on flesh and blood in Jesus Christ. He's the light of the world. That's his identity. Jesus then quickly moves to declare why the light has come. Notice the next phrase. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Friends, that's a call to salvation. Remember, darkness in John's gospel is the realm of sin and Satan and ultimately death. To dwell in the darkness is to be under the judgment of God and bound for eternal destruction. But amazingly, verse 12 tells us that the darkness stands no chance against the light of the world. Through the gospel, Jesus shines in the darkness and he gives light to all those who believe. That's salvation, to be brought out of darkness and into light. That's that's salvation. When a sinner, by faith, follows Jesus, that sinner is brought from darkness to light, from death to life, from the realm of Satan to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. The gospel then, the gospel is the good news that darkness will not win. God's light through Christ will give life to all of God's people and ultimately life to an entirely new creation. The darkness will not win. That's incredibly good news, isn't it? It's remarkably good news. We could just meditate for a while on Christ's light defeating the darkness. I almost preached just verse 12. But for this morning, I want you to note how Jesus connects the light of salvation with discipleship. This is really important. Notice Jesus' word choice in verse 12. It's so small, you probably would read over it if you were just breezing through the gospel. Verse 12, Jesus could have said, whoever believes in me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That would be a true statement. And in many other places, Jesus puts the emphasis of the gospel precisely in these terms. Whoever believes in me. But in this context, Jesus says something different. And that is significant. He says, whoever follows me. Of course, believing Jesus is included in following Jesus. But that phrase, follow me, is more comprehensive, we might say. Let me just try to put it as clearly as I can. Jesus does not call us in verse 12 to make decisions about him. He calls us to follow him. A decision is a one-time thing, and it may or may not have any lasting impact on your life. But to be a disciple is to be changed. It's to be transformed. Upon following Jesus, a disciple's life is different from that point forward. It's a decision, yes, but it's one that's lived out for the rest of your life. 
He could have said whoever believes in me, but he says whoever follows, because he wants you to understand that it's not just one moment in time, it's all of time, you following him, so that your whole life is changed. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Disciples are believers in Christ who follow Jesus' word day by day by faith. Disciples submit to Jesus' commands. Disciples are corrected by Jesus' teaching. Disciples uphold Jesus' word. In short, disciples orient their lives entirely around the word of God. Because that's how we follow the Lord and don't walk in darkness, but instead walk in light. By submitting to the scriptures in obedience to Jesus Christ, all empowered by faith. That's what it means to be a disciple. So from this, from this, I want you to see how discipleship, the work of making disciples, discipleship can happen anywhere in which you find Christians. Of course, the gathering of the church is ground zero for discipleship. We're all being discipled right now, which is why it's vital that you're present here on a Sunday morning because we're all being discipled right now. This is ground zero for discipleship, but that discipleship then has to continue as the church scatters out from this place. In fact, this is one of my favorite ways to think about the church. You may have noticed that whenever I do the welcome, I always say welcome to this gathering of First Baptist Fisherville. Why do I say gathering? Because that's what the church is. The gathering in of the people of God. God forbid if something were to happen to our facility and next week we had to meet in the parking lot, the building may be gone, but the church would continue. Because it's the gathering of, the, of God's people. So this is one of my favorite images for the church. We gather in to feed on the word of God so that we can scatter back out to do the ministry of the word of God. The church gathers in order to scatter. So, where does discipleship happen? Anywhere believers use their lives to encourage one another to live in obedience to Jesus. Where does it happen? Anywhere that believers use their lives to encourage one another to live in obedience to Jesus. So, over the dinner table with church members in the park with another mom, at the coffee shop with a brother in the Lord, standing in the parking lot on a Sunday with your children on a hike, at the break table with a co-worker, and on and on we could go. This is how the mission of the church advances. As God's people gather together to hear God's word and then scatter out with God's word into every sphere of life. Encouraging and calling other people to follow Jesus by faith. Friends, when a, when a congregation, when a group of people, when a congregation grows in this kind of discipleship culture, the possibilities for what God might do are almost unthinkable. It's, it's not just a strategy. This is, this is straight from Jesus. Whoever follows me, Jesus says. That's why we've been called and that's what we've been called to do. To be disciples and to make disciples all in response to the light of the world. That's perspective number one. From the call of the light now in verse 12, we move to verses 13 to 20. And perspective number two, the need for the light. The need for the light. As you might expect, the Pharisees don't receive Jesus' call. That starts a lengthy discussion that illustrates why humanity needs the light of the world. Like the Pharisees, we are so mired in darkness that we cannot see the truth even when it is standing in front of us. So notice the back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees. Verse 13, the Pharisees object to Jesus 
on the basis of a, of a legal technicality. Verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jewish legal tradition, stretching all the way back to Moses, did not admit self-testimony. You can't bear witness about yourself. If this sounds like John chapter 5 to you, that's because it is. The Pharisees pick up the same argument from chapter 5, and they charge Jesus with having no other witnesses except himself. Jesus, for his part, dismantles their objection. Notice verse 14. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Jesus is not necessarily rejecting the legal tradition here. Rather, his point focuses on his faithfulness to God the Father. Notice how Jesus says he knows where he came from and where he is going. That's a reference to Jesus' identity as the Word of God who is sent from the Father. And as the Word of God, Jesus is faithful to his Father. We saw this earlier, again, in John chapter 5, didn't we? Jesus said, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's the key point. If Jesus stepped outside of his Father's will, then he would surely not be telling the truth. He would be an untrue word. But Jesus would never do such a thing. Every breath that Jesus takes is in faithfulness to God the Father. That's why Jesus' testimony is true. Because it's not solely his testimony. What Jesus says, the Father says. Because Jesus is the word of God. So even if, even if Jesus testifies to himself, his testimony is true. Because he's the true word. But the opposite, the opposite is true for the Pharisees. They don't know the Father. And therefore, their verdict about Jesus is necessarily false. By nature, they don't know the truth. Jesus makes this quite clear in verse 15. What he says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Now, Jesus is not excluding all judgment. He sits in judgment over the Pharisees in this very passage. Jesus' point is that he does not judge like the Pharisees do, according to flawed human nature. Jesus does not judge by appearances, which is the worst kind of judgment at all. The judgment that just sees the superficial and then rushes to conclusions without trying to find out any more information. Judging by appearances is the worst kind of judgment. And Jesus says, I don't do that. I judge with right judgment. It all comes together in verse 16. This is where we learn that we're on the right track in understanding Jesus. Listen again, verse 16. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. That's a good summary of Jesus' entire response to the religious leaders. Why are they wrong in their response to Jesus? Because they don't know God. They don't know the Father. Why is Jesus right even in his self-testimony? Because Jesus is the faithful Son and the true Word of God. That's why he's right. Truthfulness, you see, is a bigger category than having your facts right and your witnesses straight. Truthfulness is ultimately an expression of one's faithfulness to God. That's what it means to be truthful. You're faithful to God. Since Jesus is the faithful word, then he is also a truth-telling witness, even when he witnesses to himself. Now, that argument by itself is pretty powerful, right? Jesus has sufficiently won this case against the Pharisees. But as so often happens in the Gospels, Jesus is not finished with them. With an incredible comb combination of rebuke and patience, Jesus shows them from the Old Testament that they ought to believe him. 
right? So it's, it's almost as though Jesus says, I am telling the truth. I know you don't believe me. So let me show you from the Bible why you ought to believe me. Follow along with Jesus as he makes this next level. Verse 17, Jesus affirms the Mosaic requirement of two witnesses. Look at verse 17. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. That's just good, wise, common sense, legal practice straight from the law of Moses. You should have multiple witnesses. Jesus meets that standard, he says. Look at verse 18. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the, fa- the, the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So as the word of God, Jesus meets Moses' requirement. He testifies and the Father testifies. The Pharisees, of course, don't accept that point. Look, verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered them, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So this question of Jesus' father is going to dominate the rest of the chapter. Eric's going to begin covering some of that next Sunday. This question of the fatherhood of Jesus. Who is his father? That dominates the rest of the chapter. But for now, I want you to see how verse 19 reveals the Pharisees' deeper problem. What is their problem? It has nothing to do with witnesses. It's got nothing to do with evidence. The Pharisees' problem is that they don't know God. They dwell in darkness. That's why they don't believe Jesus. So if we were to put this in the language of the Gospel of John, which he wants us to do, if we were to put this in the language of John, The Pharisees don't need more witnesses. What do they need? They need to be born again. They need John chapter 3 to happen to them. They need to be born again. It's only through having God as their father that they can hear the testimony of the father in his son. You've got to be a part of God's family before you can recognize the identity of God's beloved son. They don't need more witnesses. They need to be born again. I said earlier that the aim of this sermon is to help us follow Jesus. So, how does this issue with the Pharisees help us follow Jesus? What impact does this have on discipleship? Well, for one, this point ought to remind us that in evangelism, in evangelism, we are not simply seeking to convince people with arguments. Evangelism is not ultimately getting people to decide for Jesus. Evangelism is, at its core, laboring for the Holy Spirit to grant new life through the Word of God. That's what evangelism is. Humanity's need, our need, is so great that nothing less than rebirth will do. Sinners don't need better arguments. Sinners don't need more witnesses. Sinners need regeneration. We need the Spirit to do what only the Spirit can do. Grant new life. Now, the Spirit grants new life through our witness to God's Word. As we speak of Christ and as we share the Gospel, the Holy Spirit takes that witness and He uses it to give people the new birth But even then, even then, our witness is not the cause of their life. The Holy Spirit is. Our witness is only the means through which the Holy Spirit gives life. So when it comes to making disciples, whether it's disciples in your own home or in your church or in your workplace or in your neighborhood, when it comes to making disciples, we need to always remember that praying for the Spirit's work is as essential as speaking the Word of God. Indeed, without the Spirit's work, even the most persuasive witness falls short. And if you don't believe me, look at this passage. Jesus is the witness, and they don't believe Him. We are always dependent upon the Holy Spirit to grant new life in the work of discipleship. Friends, this is part of the reason why, this is part of the reason why we are adding that Wednesday night prayer service in August. 
Why are we doing that? Because we need to pray together for the Holy Spirit to work. Yes, we preach. Yes, we study the Bible. Yes, we share the gospel and send missionaries. But unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. You could even say that humble, faithful, church-wide prayer is foundational to a culture of discipleship. So coming to pray on Wednesday night, beginning this fall, is absolutely essential for the kind of church we want to be. This entire exchange with the Pharisees reminds us how deep humanity's need is. We don't need more witnesses. We need to be born again. And, and friends, that ought to make us all the more dependent upon the Holy Spirit in the work of making disciples. That's perspective number two. From the need for the light, let's turn now to verses 21 to 27. And here we're going to look at the judgment of the light. The judgment of the light. Big picture view of these verses is that Jesus is asserting his authority. If you want the one sentence summary, here it is. Jesus is in charge. That's what he's doing in these verses. He is asserting his authority. The Pharisees may question Jesus, but they don't sit in judgment over Jesus. Notice verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Simple observation. Jesus starts this part of the conversation. He's pressing the issue. They don't sit in judgment over him. He sits in judgment over them. Jesus affirms that he will return to his heavenly father, which means his mission will be accomplished. He will lay down his life as the savior of God's people, and then he will ascend again to the Father's right hand. But most of the Pharisees and most of the Jews don't believe that Jesus is their Messiah. After Jesus is gone, they will go on seeking for a Messiah, even to this day. Contemporary Jewish religion is looking for a Messiah. But they won't find what they seek. Because Jesus is the only Messiah. And since they reject Jesus, they will not be with him in glory. Instead, according to the Lord, those who reject Jesus will die in their sin. They will die in their unbelief. This is the judgment of Jesus Christ. Even those who reject him will be subject to his authority. Even those who deny him will bow the knee before him. Not in love, but in judgment. As we've come to expect, many people in the crowd are confused. Verse 22, they wonder if Jesus will end his own life. Why are they so confused? Verse 23, because they belong to the world. Whereas the Son of God is from heaven. You have to be from Jesus' realm to understand Jesus' words. They're not. That's why the unbelieving crowd misunderstands Jesus. They have not been born again. They are not from above. They are from below. And so Jesus very clearly warns them of what is going to happen. Listen again to verse 24. And I want you to note both the clarity and the mercy of Jesus. Verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he... You will die in your sins. Friends, Jesus could not be any more plain. Judgment is coming for those who reject the gospel. Every person comes into this world mired in sin, and the just penalty of that sin is eternal judgment. And in God's economy, Jesus is the judge who issues that judgment. Please do not miss the clarity with which Jesus speaks. He minces no words. You will die in your sins, Jesus declares. Who could say such a thing? Only the judge of all the earth. 
Only the living God in human flesh. Only God could speak so directly and so plainly. And that's who Jesus is. He is the Lord of all the earth. He is the authority over every person. It is remarkably clear. But at the same time, do you hear the mercy that this judge holds out? There's mercy in verse 24. What else does verse 24 say? There's that wonderful word, unless. (laughs) Meaning, the judgment's not here yet. It's not here yet. You will die in your sins unless you believe in me, Jesus says. In fact, he says, unless you believe that I am he. That he is the Christ, the son of the living God. That he is God himself. Mercifully, the judgment is not yet. There is a way to be saved from the eternal judgment. And that way comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So he's remarkably clear. And in that clarity, he holds out this incredible mercy. Unless, believe. Sadly, most of the people don't, they don't see the mercy. Look at verse 25. Who are you? They ask him. Again, there's this question of fatherhood, origin, identity. That's the rest of the chapter. Notice Jesus' answer for now, verse 25. Who are you, they ask. Jesus says, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. It's not a secret, in other words. At each step of his ministry, Jesus has told them the truth. He is the true temple, John 2. He is the Son of God, John 3. He is the Christ, John 4. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, John 5. He's the bread of life, John 6. He's the living water, John 7. And now he's the light of the world, John 8. Who am I? He's been telling them the whole time. At every step, Jesus has told them who he is. And his testimony is true. In fact, notice how Jesus again affirms his truthfulness. Verse 26, I have much to say about you and much to judge But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Jesus has come from God, and therefore every word he says, every judgment he issues, every claim he makes is undeniably true. He's the authority over the crowd. They don't sit in judgment over him. He sits in judgment over them. He is the authority. And so this call is right there before them. Unless you believe, you will die in your sins, Jesus says. But don't miss the unless. Believe. As we noted just a minute ago, many in the crowd don't don't believe. They don't understand. Verse 27. They don't know that Jesus is talking about God the Father. So many of the people, they see, but they they don't actually see. They hear that judgment is coming... Think about this. They hear that judgment is coming, but they reject the one who can save them from that judgment. What about you this morning? What about you? Do you recognize that if you're in this room today and you are hearing these words, you are under the authority of Jesus Christ. He is the authority in your life regardless of how you respond to him. Just as he is the authority for the crowd in John chapter 8, he's the judge over you and me and every other person on earth. And and that means that verse 24, verse 24 is speaking to you. Sometimes people will say to me, I would believe in God if he would just talk to me. He has. In his word. And he's remarkably clear. Verse 24, unless you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you will die in your sin. That's true of every person in this room. And so I'm obligated under God to ask you, have you turned from your sin and submitted your life to Jesus Christ? We've been talking this morning about discipleship, about following Jesus. And I want to be clear with you that following Jesus begins right here at this point with repentance and with faith. You cannot be Jesus' disciple until you have trusted him with your life. 
Followers of Jesus don't merely revere him as a teacher. We don't simply follow him as a model. We trust him as a savior. We bow before him as the Lord. We cling to him as our refuge. Is that true of you today? There's no more important question for you to reckon with than this one. Is that true of you this morning? Our church would love to welcome you as a follower of Christ. And it begins here with turning from sin and trusting in Jesus' death to save you. He is the authority. And you can either recognize his authority now or on the last day. Jesus is the light of the world and his light reveals the judgment that is coming. And so again, I plead with you, trust him today. That's perspective number three. That brings us to the last section of the passage, verses 28 to 30, where we see the fourth perspective on the light of the world. Let's conclude with this, verses 28 to 30, the glory of the light. The call of the light, the need for the light, the judgment of the light, now the glory of the light. Many people in the crowd don't understand Jesus' words, verse 27. They don't hear the testimony of the Father in what Jesus says. So, big question. Where will the truth of Jesus finally be seen? I mean, many people don't believe in him, so maybe the darkness is winning. Many people don't believe, so where will the light finally shine so brightly that it will be undeniable. Where will the light shine? Notice what Jesus says, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, remember they've asked him about his identity. They want to know who he is. So Jesus said to them, verse 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Friends, Jesus is the Son of Man, and He will be lifted up at the cross. In John's Gospel, Jesus is lifted up at the cross. It's at the cross, then, that the light of the world shines most brightly. At the cross, as the Son of God bears the Father's wrath for sin, at that moment of agony and shame, the light of the world reveals His glory as the faithful Son of God. The cross is where the light will shine. In a way then, in a way, the cross is the, out, is the earthly outworking of the heavenly communion between the Father and the Son. Notice verse 29. Jesus doesn't want us to misunderstand the cross, so He tells us how to interpret it. Verse 29. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. What pleases the Father? The faithfulness of the Son. What is the Father's will? For the Son to be lifted up. When the world sees the cross, it sees only a place of darkness and death. The world sees the cross as confirming that Jesus is not who he claimed to be. This is why they mock him and wag their heads and say, If you were the Son of God, come down off the cross. The world sees the cross as confirmation that Jesus is a liar. But in the wisdom of God, the, the cross is the confirmation that Jesus is God's beloved Son. That He is faithful to His Father. In the course of redemptive history, there has never been a more powerful or clearer moment of revelation than the cross of Jesus Christ. To believe in Christ crucified is to affirm the truthfulness of all that Jesus says. Even more, to believe in Christ crucified is to see the glory of God radiating out from the Son of God as He sheds His blood to save His people. Even in this passage, a glimpse of that glory breaks in to all the confusion. Notice what happened in verse 30. Many believed in him, John says. 
The rest of their story comes in next week's passage. But for now, don't, don't miss the glory. The light of the world breaks in and many believe. It's at the cross, at the cross that the glory of Christ, the glory of the light of the world shines most brightly at the cross. I got a couple more pages here. This is all application from just this point about the cross as the clearest moment of God's revelation. Okay? For Christians, then, there is nothing more central than the cross of Jesus Christ. It is our boast, it is our hope, it is our confidence, our joy, our one resounding message. And this ought to make a huge impact on how we go about our life together as a church. I, I want you to see this connection. I'm, I pray that the Spirit would work through, through just these few paragraphs left. I want you to see this connection. Because Jesus' glory is seen most clearly at the cross, the gospel then has to be central to a church's life and mission. Because God's glory, seen most clearly at the cross, the cross and the gospel have to be central to the life of a church. Friends, most churches treat the gospel as peripheral. Most churches talk about the gospel as though it's the front door to Christianity. And then once you get in, there's all this other stuff that's more important for you to know and do. And John 8 is saying, no, no. No, the glory of God shines most clearly at the cross. And so therefore the gospel has to be central to the life and ministry of a church. By that, I don't solely mean that churches must preach the gospel. We have to do that. I don't solely mean that we must defend the gospel. We must do that. I don't solely mean that we must guard the gospel in membership and church discipline. We have to do that. By centrality, I mean we must apply the gospel in the context of our life together day by day and week by week. If the cross is the central point of the glory of God, then the cross must be the central point of a church's life. And so we have to apply the gospel to one another week by week. This is absolutely essential if we want to have that culture of discipleship that we talked about earlier. We have to apply the gospel in everyday life with one another. What in the world does that mean? What does it mean to apply the gospel? Consider some examples. Because I believe God is sovereign, I refrain from manipulating or mistrusting my fellow believers. I trust God in those relationships. Because I believe God loves me, in Christ, I choose to love my fellow church members, even when they don't deserve it. Because God is patient with me in Christ, I choose to be patient with fellow church members who are different than me. Because God is faithful to me in Christ, I choose to keep my word to fellow believers and to serve faithfully in the body. Because God is merciful to me, I choose to not hold a grudge when someone wrongs me. Not if, when. Because God is truthful to me in Christ, I choose to only speak what is true to and about my fellow believers. Because God has given me hope in Christ, I choose to believe the best about my fellow members. We could go on and on and on. That's what applying the gospel looks like in the everyday life of the church. Now someone would say to me, Jeff, none of those things actually sound very significant. And you would be wrong in that conclusion. When we interact with one another in these kind of ways we display the glory of Jesus Christ for all of the world to see. That's the power of the light of the world. What does he do? He delivers you from darkness and causes you to walk in the light with whom? With one another. 
So where does the world see that the light of the world delivers people out of darkness? Friends, the world has to see it in us. Christ not only delivers us from darkness, but he then transforms us so that our lives shine with the very same light of his glory. In that sense, brothers and sisters, having a culture of discipleship where the gospel is displayed and where members are using their lives to help one another follow Jesus, that kind of culture is the glory of God invading the darkness of this world and calling for sinners to come and be saved. Please join me in praying that God would grow that kind of culture in our church. And then, as we pray, let's do the long, slow, steady, quiet work of growing that culture by helping one another follow Jesus, living in obedience and faith to his word. Verse 12, whoever follows me, Jesus says. Let's be that kind of church, a church where a culture of discipleship flourishes so the glory of God is seen. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us. We cannot do this work. Left to ourselves, Father, we would be content in darkness. And if we're honest, Lord, far too often, we drift back towards the darkness because it feels so natural to us. Remind us, Father, that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus and therefore we are made to live in the light. Grow us, Father, in making disciples in the everyday stuff of life. Father, please build that kind of culture here at this church for the glory of Christ, for the good of the lost, for the glory of your name. Father, help us. This is a work beyond us. We pray that you would Come now by your Holy Spirit and bear fruit in us and through us all to the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.